Hey, I got a question for you. Uh, two things. I want you to think of two things in your brain that when you think about them together, they, they, are, they just don't make sense. Like, they are incompatible. Together, two things that just don't go together. When I was little, uh, I was afraid of flying. Like, I, I did not like planes. And it was because in my mind, there were two things about flying. First, there was the giant metal tube that we were just supposed to get into. And then second, there was just the wide open air. Like, how does that make sense, right? Like, as a kid, that does not make sense. Those things don't go together. But then I grew up, right? And I learned that apparently airplanes are safe. You know, I learned at least enough uh, about traveling by plane to know that uh, an airplane can fly hundreds of miles an hour in, in the air and it doesn't fall. Aerodynamics or physics, I don't know really what it is, but I believe in it now and I love flying. It is not terrifying anymore. So as a kid, we, as kids we have this incompatibility, right? We have these things that just we can't wrap our minds around. And a lot of times we grow out of them, but then there's like other things. As adults, like maybe there's other stuff that when we just think about these two things, they don't quite fit together. Like, for example, I was talking to a friend the other day. She's an adult, mind you. And she could not, she could not grasp the concept that you can't just print more money to have a better economy. Like, what's the issue, right? Like, just make more money. That, that's fine. It'll be fine. But in her mind, those things, they couldn't go together. A more money and a bad economy. Or like, maybe you're like me, and, and the fact that more sleep can actually mean more productivity, that, just, that doesn't fit, right? I don't get that. That's not how I work. So we have things like that all the time that we just, we can't see how they fit together. But then there's bigger stuff too, more serious stuff even than that. There's things that we don't understand about like how the world works really. Questions that we have, things that don't fit together when it comes to things like our faith. So, so questions like, how would a good God allow suffering? Like how does that work? Or how does Christianity not con totally contradict uh, science or the other way around? Like how do those fit together? Can they? Can they both be true? There's tons of questions like that, but, but one is a, a quote that I came across. You already saw a little bit of it. It's a quote I've been thinking about for days. It will not get out of my head, and warning, it's a little intense, but this is the question that I, it is hard to wrap our minds around. The question is, has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this, or even allow this, and still claim to be a loving God? That's a heavy question, right? It's a heavy question, but it's an important one, and it's where we're going to kind of spend time tonight. It's, it's what we're going to talk through. So if this is your first night here at Veritas, we are going through a series, and we're calling it Hard Questions, Uneasy Answers. And tonight, we've got a really hard question. So if this is your first time here, welcome. The question that we are going to be talking through tonight is how could a loving God send people to hell? 
Sheesh. How could a loving God send people to hell? I think it's a question that a lot of us, a lot of us have asked in some variation or other. Maybe out loud, maybe to friends, maybe just in our head over time. I have asked this question so many times in my life, over and over again. I've asked this question, but I've also been asked this question a ton too. From college students, you guys, but from family members, for sure family members have asked this question. Friends have asked this question and they say, Alex, if God is good, right? If he is loving, if he's kind, if, if that's what it says he is in the Bible, then why can't he just save everyone, right? Like if he's loving and good, why can't we all just go to heaven? Does God not want that for us? Or worse, does, does he not really care about us enough? Or maybe it's that he, he doesn't have the power to do it. He couldn't do it if he wanted to. What is it? Why can't we all just go to heaven? See, I think, I think personally, I think this is one of the hardest questions that we might face this semester. I'm going to answer a lot of questions, but personally, I think this is one of the toughest because it gets at who we think God is. It gets at questions like what we think is going to happen to us after we die. What happens to other people that we love? What will happen to them? It, it, answering this question, it gets at so much of who we are. It's a big question. But before we answer the big question, I think we should probably first try to answer the question, what is hell? Like, actually, legitimately, what is it, right? Like, if you think about hell and you get an image or a description or a picture in your mind, what comes to mind? There are a ton, a ton of different ideas out there, which honestly only makes it more confusing, right? Culture has tons of suggestions for us when it comes to what hell might be. So maybe you've seen artists depict hell, and you look at paintings like this one, and it is just like fire and brimstone, right? It's all torment. It's fear. This is not a place that you want to be, right? No, thank you. Pass. Terrifying. So we see images like that, and maybe that's what hell is. But then other people would say, no, it's not that. No, don't believe that. That's too intense. Really, what hell is, it's kind of a party, right? Like, hell is where you get to just do whatever you want. It's where you can let your desires just run wild. There are no rules. Also, it was really hard to find a picture that represented this, so I have nothing against Katy Perry. really like Katy Perry, but I just felt like this actually maybe got us close to it. Maybe not, but she's cool. So maybe, maybe it's fire and brimstone, but maybe it's hell is a party. Then there's other people who would say, no, it's not really either of those things, right? Hell, it's not terrible, but, but it's not great, right? It's somewhere in between. Like maybe you've, you've seen the show The Good Place, and in it, hell isn't even really hell. It's the bad place. It's just like a neighborhood, essentially, with a, some annoying people and way too many frozen yogurt shops. Maybe that's it. All these different ideas of what hell is, are any of them even close to, to what it really is, to reality? Well, to be honest, we don't know. I'm serious. 
we don't really, we aren't certain what hell is because no one who is alive has experienced it. it is, it's not a physical place that we can go to, certainly not one that we can come back from. And so we, all we have really to go off of is a concept that we get from the Christian Bible. And even that, I'm not going to lie, even that is not super literal in the Bible. Instead, the Bible's picture of hell, it's, it's a lot of metaphors. It's a lot of vis, visual comparisons or, or images that might tell us what hell is like. And a lot of those images, they come from Jesus. He is the one describing it. So sometimes the word that he uses for the word hell, it's translated as Gehenna. And I certainly didn't really know what that meant. It didn't have a ton of significance until I started looking into this. So maybe you don't either. But the word Gehenna, it would have a lot of significance for the people in the first century, the people that Jesus was talking to face to face. Immediately, this word would click for them. See, Gehenna, it it was a place outside of the city of Jerusalem. So uh, kind of the capital or the place of worship for God's people. And just outside of the city, this place, Gehenna, it was essentially the city dump. So you can think of a dump, right? And we could assume that there are things there like uh, rotting food, animal waste, sewage, bacteria, worms, maggots, like all disgusting stuff, right? And what they would do... What people would do back then in Gehenna is they would keep fires going because they had to get rid of the garbage somehow. They they had to make sure that it wasn't overrunning. It wasn't making things like a health hazard. So they had to keep fires going to burn the garbage off. And so this is the place. This is the idea that Jesus gives, the mental picture that Jesus gives of what hell is. And so he uses words, images like unquenchable fire or worms that never die, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Again, kind of, kind of terrifying. Not a place we want to be, right? So some scholars who are Christians usually that study the Bible intensely, some, some scholars, they, they hear these images, they look at the Bible, and they say, okay, based off of these images that Jesus is giving or uh, other verses in the Bible that talk about things like torment or uh, fear and just like no rest. Those are images that we get. They say, okay, based off of that description, hell, what it is, the definition of it is eternal punishment. So it's things like sadness and frustration and pain that go on forever. That's their definition. But then there's another group of scholars that say, actually, that's not quite accurate. Because when you look at other things that Jesus says, he says things like hell is uh, destruction, darkness, wrath, judgment. And none of those things, none of those actually have to mean eternal existence. And so really what we get is permanent destruction, like end of existence. It's not eternal suffering. So I I tell you this because there are different opinions in the Bible, different opinions of how to interpret the Bible when it comes to hell. It's not all that clear. And so the Bible, it doesn't give like this textbook definition of what hell is. And so I'm also not going to do that tonight. 
If the Bible doesn't do that, I'm certainly not going to stand up here and tell you a definition. But there's one thing, there's one thing that is really clear about hell in the Bible. There's one thing that's super clear, and that that is hell is where God isn't. Hell is where God isn't. So 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, a verse in the Bible, it talks about it like this. It says, they, so those who experience hell after death, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So whatever hell is, whatever it is, we know that it, what makes it hell is that the presence of the Lord, God's presence is not going to be there. And if God's presence isn't there, things like joy, life, goodness, love, those aren't going to be there either. And that's because the Bible, it talks about how God is the source of all goodness, all of those things. And so when God is out of the equation, when God's presence isn't there, all of that goes away. But is that fair? Like, honestly, do, do people deserve that? For all of that to be stripped away. Is that fair? There's a story in the Bible uh, in the book of Luke. So Jesus told a bunch of stories known as parables that weren't real, really. They, they didn't happen to actual people. But what they were meant to do is to teach people something. They were meant to point to something else. And so there's one in Luke chapter 16 about two guys. And one of the guys, he is a rich man, and he is living a life of luxury. And then there's this other guy, and his name is Lazarus, and he lives outside of the gate of the rich guy's house. He is extremely poor. He begs for food scraps from the rich man's table, his garbage, essentially, and his whole body, his body is covered in sores. And you got to imagine, the rich guy, he can probably see Lazarus from inside his house. He can look out his gate, out his window, and see Lazarus laying there, and he doesn't do anything about it. He just continues to live his lush life. And then the two men die. Okay, remember this is a story, and it gets kind of weird, but we get this picture of Lazarus being taken up, carried up by angels, and taken to Abraham's side. So we are just getting a picture of what heaven might look like. It's just supposed to make us think of heaven. But the rich man, he's brought down to what's known as Hades. And he's tormented there. So a picture of hell. And, and the rich man, as he's down there, he looks up and he sees Lazarus up there with Abraham. And he cries out. He begs for just a little bit of water. That's all he wants. Just a drop of water for his thirst. Come down, Lazarus. He says, give me some water. But Abraham, he steps in and he says, no. See, in life, the rich man, he had it easy. And Lazarus was the one who suffered. And what did the rich man do? Nothing. He ignored it. And so now, Lazarus is comforted, and the rich man, he will be the one to suffer. And nothing will be done about that. That won't be undone. When we hear that story, when I hear that story, I think when most of us hear that story, our first impression, our first thought isn't, oh, poor rich guy. What? That's so unfair. How did that happen? Why? That's not the way we think, right? I think it's more likely that what we think is, yeah, yeah, that seems right. It seems like that is what 
that rich man deserves. He was cruel. He was selfish. And, and there should be consequence for that. I think we think that because each of us, we all have this sense that when we see injustice, when we see wickedness, evil, if you want to call it that, we think it should be dealt with. Right? Like, you guys are college students, and so on campus, to be honest, there is a ton of injustice that happens on campus. When we look around, maybe it's little stuff, right? Like, a, a friend betrays you by just gossiping about you, and you feel wronged. Like, that's real, right? Or maybe you're someone who is dealing with depression, anxiety, mental health, and what you watch is your roommate just kind of start avoiding you, Right? They don't move in. They don't move near you to be with you. They just start ignoring you, and it hurts. Or maybe you are someone who has dealt with manipulation and control from an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. We see racism on campus all the time that really, honestly, nobody speaks out against. We see story after story of sexual assault. Some of our friends have experienced it. Some of us in this room have gone through that. When we see wickedness, when when we see injustice, we want it to be dealt with. We want justice. And I think, I believe, we want that. We want justice because we were created by a God of justice. Like, we were created by a God who does not let evil go unchecked. He doesn't let it go just rampant. And that's awesome news for us. It's such good news. Like, imagine, imagine how upset we would be if we found out that God was watching things like abuse and oppression and violence and manipulation all over the place. And his response was, yeah, I'm not going to do anything about that. I know I'm the all-powerful creator of all things of the universe, but it doesn't feel like it's my place to do anything about that. It would be unloving of me to correct that wickedness. It would be unkind for me to punish that person. If we found out that that was God's response, we would be outraged, right? Because that's not a good or loving God at all. It's not. It's not a good or loving God. Miroslav Volf, he is a Yale theologian, so really smart guy. And he grew up in Croatia, which experienced just so much violence over his upbringing. So all, all through growing up in, in the 1990s, he experienced civil war. And so there was constant bombing in his cities. For this prolonged period of his life, he was interrogated by his enemies. His father was sent to and tortured at a, a concentration camp. So all of this, he saw violence after violence upon violence upon violence, and it led him to believe, he, he said this, he said, it's coming. He said some really good things. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. That God wouldn't be worthy of worship. If our God, if God is a God who is worthy of worship, of praise, of dedication, commitment to him, and if he's really loving, then he has to do something about 
evil, about selfishness, injustice in the world. He has to. There has to be consequence for that. He has to end, radically end evil in the world around us. But, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's just in the world around us. I don't. Because when I read that story of Lazarus and the rich man, when I read that story, my first thought is, okay, good. That is what the rich man deserved. That, that is consequence for his selfishness, his cruelty. But my second thought, oof, that guy looks a lot like me. He does. Not the rich part, right? But the part where he ignored someone who was in need. The part where he put his own comfort uh, above someone else's life. The part where his selfishness, it really brought harm to someone else. I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I can think of times in my life where my selfishness actually really hurt someone else. Like, I hate to admit it, but I have said things, mean things that have ended friendships. I have. And I've looked at people that I could see were hurting, and I walked on by. I ignored it. And I, I had done things that I knew were wrong. I knew they were wrong, but it made my life a little bit easier, so I did it anyway. What about you guys? Like, can you relate to this at all? Are there times where you can think of that you have caused people harm, that you've hurt other people with your selfishness? It's not a fun thought experiment, right? doesn't feel great to think about that, but I think when we do, I think what happens is we realize that we actually might have some of that selfishness lurking in our heart. It might not just be out there, but that, that wickedness, that selfishness, that evil, if you want to call it that, it, it might be in our heart too. And God, he can't just close his eyes. He can't just pretend it's not there. If he is a God of love, he has to deal with that, and we are part of the problem. So what is the solution? Right? What, what does he do about that? Does he, I'm just going to say it, does he wipe us all out? Does he send everyone to hell if everyone is part of the problem? Well, no, that's not his solution. Thank God he had a different way. He did not ignore evil. He didn't let, let it go rampant. But, but he has not completely wiped us out. He found a different way. He made a way. Nick brought it up earlier, but John 3, 16, 17, it, it's a great, great verse. And here's what it says. We'll read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, some of you, you hear that verse and you're like, I have heard that over and over and over again all my life. And your eyes are kind of glazing over a little bit. And some of you just look at that and you're like, oh, that's that cliche Christian thing that everyone says. Like Tim Tebow, he's the one who put it on his eye black years ago, right? Also, shout out to the time that we met him at Passion. I still think about that. That was so crazy. I cannot believe that happened. But anyway, this verse, a lot of you, you look at this and and it doesn't really have much meaning. It doesn't have relevance. And I totally, I totally get that. 
But this verse, these verses, they're not overdone. They're not cliche. And that is because this is the way God has made. This is his solution to evil in the world. This is how he removes it without removing us. He has gotten rid of the problem of evil long term, but he has he has given us life, and that happens through his son, Jesus, through a death that had the power to remove evil and to give us life. That is what Jesus is offering us, an eternal future with him. And with that comes all of that that we talked about, the goodness, the life, the joy, the peace, all of that, that thriving satisfaction, that's all in him. And so with that is all offered in Jesus. But the thing is, we do not have to want what Jesus is offering. We don't have to. God has not made us to be robots that are programmed to do exactly as he says. And so it's, it's a hard thing to say, but some people will not want God's presence. They won't want life with him. Because we're not forced to spend eternity with him. So I think it's worth asking, and I, I don't ask this lightly, but I think it's worth asking, what do you want? What do you want? This is what he is offering, but it, it kind of comes down to what, what would you want? I said this a couple weeks ago, but if you don't have an answer for that, that is okay. Genuinely, you don't have to know exactly what you feel about that question tonight. But ask yourself, do you want God's presence? Do you want what he's offering? Music team, you can come back up. But I want to I wanna tell you a story about a, a guy a while back at college. See, all through college, he knew exactly what he wanted, right? And that was all the things that the world offered him. So he wanted the things like success and the gorgeous girlfriend, the amazing friends, all the experiences. He wanted the perfect body. He wanted everything that the world could give him. And the thing was, he was loaded. Like, he had the money to do it. And he bought things like expensive clothes, food, alcohol, trips. Like, it was good to be around this guy because he could buy it all. But by senior year, he, he kind of noticed little by little that there was something honestly really wrong. He could tell that there was something pretty off. And nothing that he was doing, every time he ignored it or tried to fix it, it didn't help. It just got worse. It just got worse. And so one night he was doing what we all do to cope. He was scrolling Instagram and he came across a quote. He came across a quote and it was, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And this guy had no idea what that meant, but he knew that he wanted the desires of his heart, so he Googled it, right? Where's that from? And he found it was straight out of the Bible. It was a Bible verse. And the website brought him to a, another verse in Matthew, and before he knew it, he spent the night reading the entire book of Matthew, just in one sitting. And by the end of it, he realized this, this is it. This is what he had been looking for. All the things that the world wasn't able to offer him, Jesus had it for him. All the things that he wanted, goodness, success, thriving life, it was all found in a life with Jesus.
See, because he loves us, because Jesus loves us, he is offering you and me life. That is what he's giving us. If, he, if, he, if we want it, Jesus is so ready to give you all of those things that we talked about, love, peace, goodness, thriving, life, and it's all found in Jesus. So for just a minute to end, I'm just gonna pray for us. I'm gonna pray that more and more, that's what we would want, that we would want God's presence and we would want a life with him. So will you guys pray? Jesus, we thank you so much for the life that you offer. We are not deserving of that life and yet you have made a way to be with us. You have given us goodness, joy, thriving, satisfaction. All of that is found in you and you offer it freely to us. I pray that you would cause our hearts to want that, to want you, to want your presence and to want life, eternal life with you. We love you and it's in your name we pray, amen.